and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. And the next reading is from Revelation 21, 1, 1 to 5, and that's page 1181. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Thanks, David. Um, Should we just pray for Michael as he brings God's word to us? And Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, the word never returns void. So would you open our hearts and our minds to receive all Michael has to uh, share with us this evening. And will you anoint him and fill him afresh. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lydia, very much. As Lydia said, uh, I um, was her college principal uh, at Wycliffe Hall, where she was for three years. Uh, And it was I, I have to confess, who signed off on her final report. Uh, recommending her for ordination. So I'm here to (laughs) apologise to you all. Um, All I would say in my defence is that the bribe was a substantial one. So (laughs) let's pray. (laughs) Lord, we live in an extraordinary world, a world of huge beauty, a world where people are capable of extraordinary goodness, Uh, and depths of love. We live in a world, too, uh, that is torn apart by violence, both human and natural, and we struggle to understand how it can be the product of your loving, omnipotent plan. We pray that you will give us your Holy Spirit now, that you will help us to understand Uh, your world better, your purposes better, your nature better, that we may be more effective, faithful, and fruitful servants of your kingdom and of your healing. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a surgeon, an anaesthetist, an architect, and a politician, and they were debating which was the oldest and most venerable profession. And uh, (coughs) the surgeon began by saying, well, obviously surgery is the oldest and most venerable profession. If you look at the the book of Genesis, uh, God takes a rib out of the man and makes it into a woman. First surgical operation, clearly ours is the oldest and most venerable profession. Whereupon the anaesthetist said, oh, come on, what's he do just before that? Puts the man into the deep sleep. Uh, First case of anaesthesia is one of the things we have in common with preachers. And... (laughs) 
clearly ours is the oldest and most venerable profession. At which point the architect said, oh, come on, that's Genesis 2. What does God do in Genesis 1? He brings order out of chaos. He creates the universe that creates the heavens and the earth, first piece of architecture. Ours is clearly the oldest and most venerable profession. At which point the politician said, ah, but who created the chaos? And that's the question uh, I want to explore with you a little bit this evening. Who created the chaos? If the world is the creation of a good and omnipotent and loving God, why is it the way it is? Why is it so torn apart? Why is it so tragically chaotic in so many areas? And what I want to do with you is to look at four, I think, useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answers that Christian theologians have given to this deep question uh, over the centuries, and then to suggest one which I think is a little less unsatisfactory, but that's for you to decide. Uh, and I ought to say before I do that in a gathering of this nature, there's likely to be somebody who's here not out of purely academic interest. There's likely to be some here who are going through intense pain and who are struggling to hold on to their faith. And I want to say at the start that it's right that your faith should be shaken because that shows it's integrated with every other area of your life. It's not held in a watertight compartment separate from the rest of your life. So don't add guilt to all the other aspects of your problems. It is proper and it is appropriate that your faith should suffer with the rest of you. Shaken faith is still faith. So the first of the four useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answers, and it, you should have, I hope, a, a handout that gives you the rough bare bones of what I'm going to be uh, saying. <coughs> the first of the four useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answers is what's known as the free will argument. Suppose instead of uh, being in love with my very lovely wife, um, I was in love with a woman called Gertrude. Um, I ought to add at this point that Gertrude is a fictitious character and any resemblance to any human personage, living or dead, is purely unintentional. <laughs> or Freudian, possibly, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> <coughs> and suppose, just suppose that Gertrude didn't return my love. I know it's stretching credibility somewhat, but there's no accounting for lack of taste. So I love Gertrude, and she doesn't love me. So far, so bad. Suppose further, I pour out my woes to a psychiatrist. And at the end of the session, the psychiatrist says to me, look, I happen to be able to hypnotize people. It's one of the tricks of the trade. I use it to try and get people not to desire to smoke and that kind of thing, to get rid of their cravings. Why don't I, says this psychiatrist, why don't I meet up with Gertrude, hypnotize her, pretending it's just a bit of fun, and while she's under hypnosis, tell her that when she wakes up, she will be madly in love with you and she'll consider you the most attractive, witty, and intelligent man she's ever met. And supposing I agree to this, uh, on the grounds that it's purely therapeutic for Gertrude, healing her of her current blindnesses and helping her see things the way they truly are. <laughs> and supposing it worked, 
Would I be satisfied with the love I received? Would I feel affirmed and wanted and chosen and cherished? Knowing all along that it was a sham. It was a programmed reaction in her and not a freely chosen self-giving. I can't imagine anyone being satisfied with that, or if they were, I don't think they could know the meaning of the word love. Because love has to be freely given, or it's nothing at all. And I would rather forfeit Gertrude's love than force it. Because love that is forced isn't love at all. So it is, I suggest, with God. He could, no doubt, have created a world in which there was no suffering by programming, by brainwashing, by hypnotizing, by controlling all his creatures so that they always did what he wanted them to do, by presetting them to love him and to love one another. He could have refrained from giving us any real freedom letting us make any real choices or any real decisions. He could have kept all power tightly in his own hands and thereby he could have ensured that only what he wanted to happen would ever occur. I take it that God could have made a world like that. But if you were God, would you want to make a world like that? Because if there's no real freedom, then there's no real love either. Your creatures would not love you. It would be a pre-programmed sham. And actually, you couldn't love them either. Or if you did, it would simply be you loving yourself. Because if you kept all power tightly in your own hands, then actually you'd be the only one who did anything in your world. You'd be the only one who acted in your world. It would be a little bit, bit like that bit in the Mr. Bean film where he gives himself a birthday card on his birthday, rather pathetically, and opens it and goes, oh, that's nice. <laughs> the worrying thing is I don't really need to try very hard to sound like Mr. Bean. <laughs> the whole thing would be a complete pretense. It would be a toy world. Because if you don't have freedom, you can't have love. If you don't, you're not able to make any choices, you're not a character. If you don't have any power, you're not a person, you're a robot. And I'm not sure I'd want to make a world like that any more than I'd want the love of a hypnotized Gertrude. Give your creatures freedom and choice and power, however, and they become different from you. They become real people, making real choices, forging real characters of their own, capable of real relationship and genuine love. A world like that would be meaningful and worthwhile. In a world like that, love would mean something because it would be freely given. 
The problem, of course, is that in a world like that, love can be withheld as well. In a world where people are different from God, there is necessarily the risk that they may act differently from how God would like them to act. They may use their freedom in ways that hurt God and hurt others and hurt themselves. That's always the risk when you let power out of your own hands. Ask any parent. Freedom is essential because without it, existence is meaningless, but freedom can be abuse. And that, the free will argument says, is precisely what has happened. That's why the world is the way it is, because it's a real world and not a sham world. It's a free world and not a robotic world. And tragically, we have often used our freedom to choose what's wrong, to choose what looks nice for us at the expense of what is good for others. So why did God create a world full of suffering? He didn't, says the free will argument. He created a world that was good, but free. And it is our abuse of that freedom that's brought about the suffering. Now, the argument I've been mounting so far is what is known technically as the free will defense. So-called because it seeks to defend God against the charge of being to blame for the evil and suffering of the world by attributing that evil and suffering to the free will that he has given to men and women. And by suggesting that it was nevertheless a good thing that we were given that free will. And it's an argument that in its more philosophical articulations has, I think, been shown to be logically watertight. It has, however, one obvious gaping hole in it, and that is this. The free will defense may account for why our world has hatred in it, may account for why it has murder in it, it may account for why it has war in it. But what about diseases? What about earthquakes? What about drought? What about famine? They're not the products of human malevolence. They appear to be built into the very way the world is. How can we explain why things like that are allowed to disfigure God's otherwise good creation? So the free will defense is useful because it explains very well, I think, why God might allow us to do nasty things to one another, which is called in the trade moral evil. But it's ultimately unsatisfactory because it fails to explain natural evil. So let's look at useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answer number two, and let me assure you that they get shorter uh, as they go on. And answer number two is the suffering is good for you argument. Uh, answer number two is that God allows natural evil and suffering because they are good for us. There are those who think that suffering from natural causes is character building. It's soul making. There are people who think that God is justified in making the world a place of suffering and a veil of tears because it will be better for having gone through such suffering than it would have been without. I don't know if you know the uh, 
chicken soup for the soul books. Do, do people know the chicken soup for the one or two nod, nodding around? Uh, which are subtitled, they're a kind of American uh, set of books, subtitled Stories to Warm the Heart and Inspire the Spirit. Um, and people this side of the Atlantic tend to find them a little on the soapy side. Um, and I don't know which side of the Atlantic, I think this is actually an American spoof, uh, the spoof book in response to the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, entitled Chicken Poop for the Soul. <laughs> Subtitled Stories to Harden the Heart and Dampen the Spirit. <laughs> and I suspect you already know me well enough to know which I'm going to prefer. <laughs> so here's a little quotation from uh, the Chicken Poop for the Soul stories. And you have to imagine a kind of Hollywood voiceover accent, which I'm not going to attempt. I guess the first important lesson my dad taught me was to be independent. I was just four years old when he took me to the shopping center and left me there. <laughs> I'll never forget that feeling as I watched him drive away with just that little loving wave. A few days later, when that nice policeman brought me home, my dad and I both knew I'd learned a very important lesson. I'll never forget the day of my ninth birthday Dad was driving, and I was next to him in the passenger seat. Suddenly, he screamed, think fast, and jumped right out of the car. <laughs> I had to learn to drive right there on the spot. <laughs> but as long as I live, I'll never forget that broad, proud smile on his face when I pulled that old car up the driveway. That was my old man. But as Dad got older and that cough became worse, he knew he wasn't going to be always there for me to make sure I could handle the real tough times. I was 14 years old, I remember, when the police came to the high school to arrest me. As they booked me, they explained that an anonymous caller had informed them that I'd held up a convenience store. I smiled. Well, that was my old man. But two days later, he was right there to bail me out. My old man isn't here anymore, but I never forgot the lessons he taught me. So sometimes, late at night, when I'm sitting there on the floor, I look at my son, sleeping like an angel, and I know that someday soon, I'll be taking him to the mall, just like my old man. <laughs> you get the point. Uh, and it's not without its truth. God can and he does bring good out of evil and suffering. I had a, a year and a half, really, of doubt and depression just before my ordination, um, which were agonizing. And I look back to that as my main qualification for ministry. Without that, or something like it, I think I would have been a walking pastoral disaster. I mean, even more of a walking pastoral disaster. Uh, so it is not without its truth, but it won't do. It's ultimately unsatisfactory for two reasons. First is the miracles of Jesus. When Jesus healed people, he didn't seem too concerned about the benefits of which he was thereby depriving them. He didn't say, no, I better not heal you, the suffering is doing you good and the illness is a real blessing, so I'll just leave you like that. You have a good day now. Or if he did, it was never reported. No, he just went right ahead and healed them. 
for him, suffering and death were distortions of God's good creation. They were things to be fought against and eradicated, not things to be rejoiced in. And it seems to me that we who follow him should have the same view and should fight the same fight. And the second reason why this won't do is because some suffering is just so appalling that it seems almost obscene to talk of the good that might come from it, as if that somehow outweighs the evil of the suffering itself, as if it somehow makes it okay. But it's not okay. I find this to be glib talk, and I find that it belittles people's experience of their sometimes horrendous suffering. So yes, God does bring good out of suffering, and I know that from my own experience, and I expect many of you do too. But I don't think that lets him off the hook. So let's look at the third uh, useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answer, and that is that natural evil, often, when you look at it more closely, turns out to have been caused by human sin. Most of you are too old to remember the Herald Free Enterprise, but that was a ferry that um, sank just coming out of Zeebrugge Harbour on its way back to the UK, uh, occasioning a huge loss of human life. And initially, it looked as if it was simply uh, an example of natural evil. It had been hit by a large wave, and it had turned over, uh, and it had sunk. The more we found out about it, and the more investigative journalists got to work on it, the more we discovered that it wasn't quite that simple. That, in fact, the company had been taking shortcuts with its safety procedures in order to speed up the process of turnover to maximize uh, the number of trips they could squeeze into one day and to maximize profit. Uh, and that was the real reason why uh, the thing had sunk. Or take the famine in Sudan uh, some decades ago. Again, it looks like just the crops failed, the harvest failed, uh, and people starved. Actually, there was enough food. It simply couldn't be transported to where people needed it because of the civil war that was going on. So you, you see the point. Some things that look as if they're natural disasters at first glance, actually, when you take a closer look, there's a bit more human involvement and human culpability than immediately appears. This, I think, is a useful argument. It whittles away at the problem. It narrows it down a bit. But it's ultimately unsatisfactory because you simply can't trace all disasters to human agency. If somebody gets struck by lightning, who are you going to blame? So let's look at the fourth of the unsatisfactory but um, useful answers, and that is that natural disasters occur because of the disruption caused by what Christian theologians call the fall, i.e. the sin of Adam and Eve. The passage that we had read earlier today. You notice how it is the relation, once the relationship with God gets broken, symbolized by them hiding from him, that actually impacts on all the other dimensions of relationships that they're involved in as well. So their division from God occasions a division from one another. They blame each other, and their children kill each other. It occasions a 
breakdown of relationship within themselves. They feel shame. And what is shame but one bit of you disapproving of another bit of you? And it occasions a breakdown of the relationship between human beings and the natural world. Thistles, toil, pain in childbirth. What was previously intended to be harmonious is now fraught with danger, threat, and pain. Now, I think that's quite a useful analysis. I think you can look at a newspaper and look at the sociological and the psychological and the ecological divisions that are reflected in our news and know that they are ultimately symptoms of the more fundamental theological division between us and God. And I think it's a hopeful analysis as well as a useful analysis because if you can do something about the, that fundamental relationship, if you could put right our relationship with God, then all the other relationships could, in principle and in time, be healed as well. And I actually think it's quite a plausible analysis. The more that we discover about our world, the more interrelated we find the different dimensions of it to be. So a butterfly beating its wings in Madagascar can cause a hurricane in Hawaii. But it's ultimately unsatisfactory, this view, because if there's any truth to modern science, there's been pain and killing and suffering and death and disease long before human beings ever emerged. So it won't do to blame it all on us. If the world's out of sync because we're, we're out of sync with God, and one, one, with God and with one another, then perhaps we can understand why natural disasters occur now, but why before the fall? Why before human beings ever appeared? How can we reconcile what we know from science that as far back as we can see from the records and the fossils, we find evidence of one species preying upon another for its very survival, how do we reconcile all that with what the Genesis account says, which sees all that's gone wrong as the result of human disobedience and presents the time before the fall as a time of harmony, peace, and bliss? Or does it? I used to assume that that's what Genesis said until I looked. And in fact, it doesn't. It does not assume that everything's fine, everything's sweetness and light before human beings rebel. For one thing, there's the serpent. However you interpret the serpent, here is a bit of the created order actively working against the purposes of God before human beings rebel. Encouraging them to rebel. And secondly, there's the command to fill the earth and subdue it, which suggests that there are things that need subduing. So if there's stuff that needs subduing, why is there stuff that needs subduing? What's gone wrong? We're back to our original question. So it's time for me to give uh, my solution. It is a speculative solution. I can't prove it. It's not taught in the Bible. Uh, it's though I think there is biblical evidence for it. It's not Anglican teaching, it's not in the creeds, it's not taught by any major Christian denomination. You're getting the picture, I'm a complete maverick. Um, <laughs> all that I claim for it is that it is a hypothesis that fits the facts 
both theological and scientific. So this is it. Uh, in Jewish and Christian tradition, human beings are not the only free rational beings in existence. In Jewish and Christian tradition, there is a whole spiritual dimension of which we are normally unaware, but which may be nonetheless real for that. Thinking of the angelic realm, demonic realm. Within Jewish and Christian tradition, the angels were given the job of caring for creation, looking after it. Again, within Jewish and Christian tradition, there has been a rebellion within that realm. Prior to the human fall, there was an angelic fall. The whole Lucifer being expelled from heaven motif. What I'm suggesting is that that could have distorted the whole way in which creation developed, luring it away from God's original purposes, his harmonious purposes for his creation. So this is the scenario I'm trying out on you. One of my favorite words, scenario. Um, it's not a Shakespearean character, in case you're wondering, nor, nor a Brazilian footballer. Um, you know, Ronaldo to Scenario, Scenario to Pelé. Uh, this is the scenario. God begins the process of creating the universe. Everything is intended to be in harmony with everything else because it's in harmony with him. There is a rebellion within the spiritual dimension of that creation. That brings about competition, division, distortion, pain, suffering, death, predation. Through that now bloody and violent process, human beings evolve. It's God's intention that they should then undo the evil that the angelic fall had caused. It's God's vocation on human beings to fill the earth and subdue it, to heal creation bringing it back to that order and that harmony which was always God's original purpose. Instead of being the solution to the problem, however, human beings became part of the problem by joining in the rebellion. That's why Genesis 3 can say it's all our fault, even though these things occurred before we even emerged. Because if we'd remain faithful, we would have eradicated it. So its continued occurrence is due to our disobedience, even though its original occurrence was due to the angelic fall. And if you want to know what it would have looked like for human beings to heal creation, look at the person of Jesus. Here at last is a human being doing what human beings were always called to do. Healing the wounds and the hurts and the divisions and the distortions of our world. Stilling the storms, healing the sick, raising the dead. Here at last, the destructive effect of the fallen angels is being put right and creation is beginning to be set free from its bondage to decay to suffering and to death. 
Why did God let the angels rebel in the first place if he knew they were going to have that sort of effect? Because he didn't make them robots any more than he makes us robots. He couldn't force their love any more than he can force ours. He's just not the tyrant sort of God who insists that he makes all the decisions, he exercises all the power, and no one has the freedom to gainsay him. He's the sort of God who gives his creatures real freedom, lets them make real choices and real decisions, even if their decision is to withhold their love from him. He will not force us. So we come full circle to the free will defense. We come back to the position that all evil and all suffering is the result of creatures abusing the free will God has given them, not just the human creatures. You've got to take into account also, I suggest, the other aspects and dimensions of God's multidimensional world, those of the angelic and the demonic realm. So that's my suggestion. Take it or leave it. There's a chance to discuss it afterwards and indeed to ask questions, make complaints, demand your money back, that kind of thing. All I claim for it is that it enables us to say what we need to say. It enables us to say what we need to say theologically, which is that God is not the author of evil and suffering. 1 John says, uh, this is our message, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The goodness of God is part of the gospel. And this enables us to hold on to it unambiguously. Secondly, it enables us to say what we need to say pastorally to those in pain, that what you are going through is not the will of God. Because we tend to think that God is behind our illness or our bereavement or whatever it is. And at the very time that we most need to know that God is with us and for us and on our side, we actually tend to think of him as being against us and the cause of our problem and our pain. My suggestion enables us to say, no, God is not against you. Your suffering is part of the evil that free creatures have brought into the world and God is against it, and he is for you. And finally, it enables us to speak with hope. Because if suffering doesn't belong in God's world, if it's not something God has built into his world, if it is extraneous to God's world, then it can be rooted out of God's world. If suffering was not the first word about creation, it need not be the last and if all evil is ultimately moral evil, and if sin has been dealt with on the cross and Satan defeated, then we can look forward to a day when we see creation healed of all that currently mars it. A day on which all created things will finally be at peace. The wolf lying down with the lamb, the lion eating straw like the ox, the eyes of the blind open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leaping, the dumb singing, the dead living, the wilderness blossoming, and the whole creation flooded with the presence and the glory of God.